This is the Tech Talk for Accountants show with your host, Andrew Lassis, where every week we have a new guest to discuss the latest technology, apps, tips, and tricks to help you improve your accounting firm. This episode is brought to you by Tech for Accountants, an IT firm that specializes in cybersecurity for the small accounting firm. Many of our clients used to work at big firms that had all this crazy security and then went to work for themselves, and while they knew it was important to have great IT security, they just have too many other things to worry about and don't have enough time to actually learn this stuff. What we do is help bridge the gap so that even small accounting firms have great security at a fraction of the cost of doing it themselves, and it's all done for you. We offer listeners to the show a complimentary IT audit and consultation. Just go to tech4accountants.net slash podcast. And you can book a free IT audit. Again, that's tech, the number four, accountants.net slash podcast. And we're live with another episode of the Tech Talk for Accountants show. I'm your host, Andrew Lassis with Tech for Accountants IT, specializing in the accounting industry. And with us today is Bob Lewis, the president of the Visionary Group. And Bob, why don't you tell us about what Visionary does? Well, interestingly enough, Andrew, we renamed the company, the Visionary Group, about 15 years ago because people were like, hmm. we used to be called Visionary Marketing a long, long time ago. And people go, we already have a website. We're like, what? What does that mean? So we renamed the firm so you don't have any idea what the Visionary Group does. So we've been 27 years now of working just with CPA firms nationwide. Our clients range from some of the top 10 all the way down to firms a million dollars in size. Um, we do a lot of merger and acquisition work for the industry. The work we do is all custom. So we'll find firms that are out there in the market that aren't up for sale yet, not sure whether they should do an upward merger or a sale. Uh, we'll also help some of our clients who are in a position where they need to move up, they need to merge themselves up or sell, get ready to sell and then find them a home to go into. So all of that work we do in the M&A sector is very different than how the brokers work. Brokers will have a bunch of listings they'll push out. We just, we just don't do that. Mm -hmm. In this industry, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was I was just going to say I've I've been at the M and A table on both sides, so this is this is a conversation that, and for for me, where we had a lot of explosive growth. Year one, it was me in my living room. I did thirty six thousand. I net like three thousand. You know, I was I'm on my own. Like I've got a business and. Here. Yeah. And now looking back, it's like I had a job and it was a terrible job that paid nothing. And I didn't have weekends, but it was mine. I loved it. It was super valuable to me, not valuable to anybody else. And then we started growing off of, it was basically fire sales of a bunch of IT companies that went out of business. And we went from me in my living room to 30 employees in the first year, 50 employees in yeah. the second. And you know, we we had maybe ten acquisitions along the way, and then being on the other side of the table, where I realized, still, even with all these employees and all these acquisitions under our belt, we weren't running the company in a way that was attractive to other investors. And I'm just like, look, it makes money and it has people. It's not just me. Why don't you want this? And they're like, there's a lot of reasons we don't want this. And it's like, ah, so what are what are some of the things you guys are running into? That okay. are that organizations should be stop doing right now or start doing right now, just in case down the road this becomes a conversation. So inside the CPA profession, it's no secret that the talent shortage has been really seriously depleted. 
Um, there aren't enough people sitting for the CPA exam. There's not enough people going into college to go into accounting. So the swimming pool keeps getting lower and lower. And if you look at the back end of the swimming pool, we got this giant gaping hole of baby boomers leaving. So the supply of people to do the work has been shrinking steadily and will continue to shrink. Now, firms have begun to outsource. So they've opened up other capacity avenues for outsourcing. But even with outsourcing, they still can't maintain. So what's, what's really causing the, the issue and why a firm wouldn't look attractive right now to another firm, even though they're profitable, is I've got too many aging partners. I've got no staff beneath them that can take over. Um, I've got way too many production hours in a firm. So we see firms with you know production hours at 1,500, 1,800, 2,000. I've seen them in 3,000 excess plus production hours for one person in a firm. So if I've got a bunch of partners doing a high level of production work, what do I have to sell? In the old days, if you want to peel this back, people would buy a firm, add the revenue, hire more people and be able to accommodate by taking in the firm that didn't have that bench. Today, that's not an option. Today, that's actually a problem because all of these firms are out there looking at how they how are they culling out their clients, how they're getting rid of them and pricing them higher. So what value is it to buy somebody else's revenue base and have to do the same exercise if they don't have the people. That's the nut of what's going on in this industry. And the fact that we do have that shrinking supply of incoming people in a big exiting aging baby boomer group. So the second kind of boat anchor on this one, Andrew, is succession, which we do a lot of succession assessments these days. And I use the word assessment very carefully because um, inside these firms, the reason why they have to merge or sell they don't have a succession team or they don't have a succession team that knows how to bring in work or their succession team doesn't want to buy in or feel that the value of the firm is what the partners think the firm is worth. And that's a big gap in the market right now. Um, so I'm, I'm curious just on your side, I sort of have my speculation assumption on it just from my own experience, but usually when when an assessment is made on a valuation of an organization and you, know, you take EBITDA into place and the multipliers and things like that, are there usually a discrepancy between what the seller thinks that it's worth and what the buyer thinks that it's worth? And is that usually how it goes or is the assessment usually like we both agree on this? The majority of people looking to sell don't really know what the firm is worth. They have preconceived notions of it. Um, and our first step with anybody who's looking to sell, whether we're working for the buyer looking to do the acquisition or working for the seller looking to move it up, is to have that conversation because they're thinking we're going to get one, 1.2 times revenue, uh, all cash up front. And we've heard crazy stories from people. Uh, that's never going to happen. And especially if we start to break down just some basic things. There's certain drivers we look for inside firms. Number 1040s, number 1040s, when you look at what the dollar, average dollar is per 1040, multiply that out. What's that percentage of revenue? We look at revenue per professional head. We look at revenue per equity partner. These are things we can identify in about five minutes. Literally, we can size a firm in about five minutes based off of just basic metrics we look for. So once we have that conversation with the firm, we understand at least what their facts are, we can better tell them what the expectation would be in the market. Now, they may not agree with it. They know what they may have a friend who sold for a higher volume. Right now, what's going on is the private equity world is getting everybody thinking, oh, I'm going to get 1. Uh, 1.3 or 1.4 times value of my firm and I'm getting most of it cash up front. 
I will agree. If you're in Atlanta or Houston <laughs> or, or a key city, you know, Dallas, those are centers where firms want to move into. They'll pay a premium to move in there. And by the way, you need to have right now in this market, a 10 to $50 million firm for that to really work well. Mostly, most of the PE firms are looking at a larger right now. Well, that market's changing. The thing is, if, if you firms have built their practices on the back of the kind of clients that they initially opened up with, they, they keep dragging them along, which is good. The problem is with the labor shortage right now, we can't afford to drag the old clients with us that are underperforming and trying to add the new ones in. So what's happening is a lot of firms are actually shutting down and not adding new clients, which is a huge mistake, by the way, because there's a waterfall effect going on right now. Large firms are dropping clients. They're dropping down to the next tier. That tier drops more down. So there's a lot of really good clients floating around out there that are looking for homes at a high price. And if you shut yourself down from taking in work, you're really kind of hurting your firm and still using those clients that you had to build the firm on. And it's nice to be loyal, but at the end of the day, you're either you're running a business or you're running a nonprofit. If you're okay for comfortable running a nonprofit CPA firm where you're making decent money, but not like building a practice that's sellable, then you have to understand at the end of the day, you may have a firm you can't sell. That's a hard conversation we've had with a lot of firms. And people have put in at that point, 30, 40, 50 plus years of here comes my big, you know, I sail off into the sunset and then it's, well, by the way, you've been doing it wrong all this time. This was a, a realization I had come to was years ago and it was like four hour work week from Tim Ferriss. And it was basically people, they will put off the, the, um, you know, like I'll keep working hard so that retirement, I can do all these things that I want to do. And it was like, well, what if you get to retirement and you don't like those things? Like, or, you know, like my dad died suddenly out of nowhere. And, and it was like, he had been putting it all off and I mean, he had been retired for 10 years, but you know, had it happened 10 years earlier, he'd been putting off everything for someday down the future. And you know, that someday may not come. So putting in all that time and energy, and these were one of the realizations that I had come to as well when when people had approached us for acquisition and you know, we got the uh is LOI the the right uh thing when it's like the we're gonna move forward, LOI, the letter, LOI. Yeah, the letter of intent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or mem or memo of understanding, M O U. Either yeah. way. So the so the the LOI was the term that we're getting flown around with some of the uh, offers that we had gotten, and I was literally I was about to sign one of them, and I had just a you know it's a big decision. I'll have a lawyer look at it, and she was like, "You didn't sign this, right?" And I was like, well, "No, that's why I brought you here." She's like, "Never sign this. This is the worst deal ever for you." <laughs> and I was like, she's like, do you understand what this sentence means? And I'm like, no, but like, I mean, it's just one sentence. She's like, this one sentence basically means you're giving them your company and they don't have to give you anything. And I was like, oh, okay. So, uh, you know, we, we dodged a bullet there and the company's grown a ton since then, but learning, learning like what the, you know, the offers were and the LOIs and seeing people that were interested in acquiring us. And, and I'm curious on your side, are you seeing, cause some of the, the acquisition, 
like most of them were other IT companies looking to grow, but we had one and they did like smart refrigerators and wanted a, they wanted a tech department that was also a profit center. So they would generate revenue based off of the customer service that they were providing to their clients. And I was like, wow, that's really smart thing. Like take a profitable yeah. company, add all these people. You don't have to hire them. They're all smart Combined infrastructure. Yeah. So do you ever see yeah. situations like that where it's not just an accounting firm taking another accounting firm? Oh, that's a big market force right now. We are we are looking for our accounting firm clients. We, we're buying value-added resellers. We're buying tech companies, specialized consultants, because the, the, the firms that have got their heads right on this, they've moved heavily into the advisory sector and away from just compliance like audit and just you know tax and accounting. They're, they're not going to get away from it completely because that's their core infrastructure. That's what they do. But they're, they're now starting to have 30, 40% of the revenue coming from consulting services because they've got this monstrous client base that has all these other needs and they're not servicing them. So the accountants typically can't do that advisory work. It's not in their wheelhouse. They can identify it. They can do some of it, maybe like evaluation or certain types of financial work. But when you get into like, if I need to put cyber into my clients or human resources or exit planning, wealth management, I need to, I need to partner or I need to acquire that. And that's how we tell people to start the advisory side, which is one of the areas that we are really focused on helping these firms grow is you, you can do three things, three things for how to add your advisory services. You can, you can try and build it so I can hire some programmers to replicate your model and do exactly what you're doing. That's expensive and often doesn't work. I can buy or merge it, which is the traditional track. Or if you're really in a smaller size right now, you want to partner. I want to partner with somebody, create a revenue stream, cross them into my client base. But if I do the merger or acquisition, I want to merge that firm in, cross them into my client base, and I want to grow that firm independently on its own. Now, those, those, that's the market right now that firms have moved heavily into. Some firms have done it so well over the last decade plus. The large firms have been doing it forever. You get to the big four, they, they actually just carved out entities the size of, you know, IBM to do to do this kind of work. So um, you you'd hit on another point though earlier on on the getting out part about the when you do get out, how do you get out? You know, you mentioned with your with your with your dad getting out ten years earlier. There's there's two things that happen on the exit. One is I may want to I may be dependent on that exit to make the money I need for my retirement or to really compromise me. For a lot of people, that's not a problem. They've got more money than they can ever spend. So if they sold their firm for nothing or just walked away, they'd still be fine. But the harder part is the exiting part. I don't want to. Okay. This is my life. Um, so if it's my life and I don't want to exit, how do I gracefully begin to wind down when I'm 70 or 65 or whatever the age is? Because at some point, if you continue to just run it, you start to chase away the staff that's underneath you, the talent, because they think it's never going to transition and they'll never get their, their shot at the head seat. That's that's a, an issue in this industry. And then when that person does decide they want to exit, that's when they find out that they really don't have the infrastructure in place to be able to market it up very nicely and definitely not at the price that they thought they were going to get it at. So there's a lot of, lot of pieces in the equation out there. Um, Big thing right now is the capacity issue. That's that's the industry rage right now. You know, even if you recruit well, 
let's assume, Andrew, you've got the best recruiting in the world, right? If the, if the pool of recruits is shrinking, you may win more than I do, but it's still a it's still a net gain of zero at the end of the day because we're all trying to we're all taking the same people from each other. You need to start thinking outside the box. How do you increase capacity through advisory services, through outsourcing, client culling? Redirection's a big one for us. We see people trying to make their their, their professionals like salt experts, you know, state and local tax experts. Why? There's people out there that do that work. It's really complicated. Outsource it to them. Keep your people focused on what they can do best, which is a tax return or tax strategy for the client instead of stretching them. But you know, it's just a lot of different ways to run firms. I think a lot of people in their head, especially if they're in the weeds and part of the day-to-day equation. And I know I've I've become I am guilty of this. And there's there's a couple projects on our plate just right now, frankly that are like, we have a fantastic profit center that runs itself, well-oiled machine. I can get a new person in and trained up in a couple days and 95% as effective as our best person. I've got this perfect thing that is our wheelhouse, a hundred million billion percent. It's predictable. We've literally got like a faucet right now and right now is like the busiest time of year for us this this week is basically like our april 15th in in like the the tech to accountant analogy this is april 15th right and so more than we could handle we just hired two people their calendars are fully booked with appointments for the next three weeks everybody else on staff has appointments booked through the next month and then there's these projects that pop up and it's like oh well, this is a shiny thing that's not in our wheelhouse. I could easily farm this. Or, it's not the right word, but I could source this to somebody that specializes in it. We could make a couple bucks on it, make sure it's done right, keep focusing on our wheelhouse. And and I'm just like, oh, but we can do this and we've done it before. And it's like, you you're so much more profitable doing the things that you're supposed to be doing, but there's these shiny objects and it's oh. easy to, to say it from the outside. Like don't chase the shiny objects. Like, don't you see that the same old, same old boring thing is super profitable and your customers are super happy and nothing like. You just described the accounting world. That's, that's the world that we're, they're having to evolve out of now because they they've made so much money in compliance work, so much, and it's good. It's it's a value. It's something the clients need, but that market's changing now, and this is where the firms are having trouble adapting. They're like, how do I shift? Because the compression of the work labor force issue is just going to get worse and worse. With COVID, you know, it forced the whole remote workforce issue, which has been interesting. Some people love it, some people hate it. Uh, I think long term. It's going to lead to more and more M&A because what's going to happen is you're not going to have the cultural or the leadership connection from people that are in different offices. How do you get a partner who's never in the office to lead? It, it's it's more complicated. doesn't mean it Definitely. can't be done. More complicated. And, you know, the other part, too, is if I move further out to a less expensive area, New York was a, the, the battleground for all of this stuff, right? Everybody's in Manhattan. I'm going to Manhattan to work every day. I'm getting paid Manhattan wages. COVID hits, great. I'm going to move three hours away. 
And I've just bought myself a four bedroom house for $300,000 when I was living in a, you know, 400 square foot apartment for five grand a month. Um, so everybody's like, wow, this is great. But now when, when COVID came, came, went away, which has not gone away, but when it's, when the market changed back again, nobody wanted to move back. They're like, well, I still want to get paid Manhattan wages and living out here. And this is where the labor pool's been kind of crazy, the remote workforce issue, the productivity, the training, cultural connections. It's hard to have a Zoom cultural connection event. I know we're talking right now, Andrew, but but if there were 20 of us on this call, which would be a disaster because it would be a huge screen, way easier for 20 of us to network in a, in a cocktail reception than it is on a Zoom call. It just You can't create that same connection. Um, and, and those are the things that have shaken this industry up like crazy. And it's not just the CPAs, it's the CPAs clients. They're, everybody's having the same aging baby boomer issues, talent issues, um, pricing. So that's what we see out there. And touching on that, I mean, initially, like you had said, the, the Manhattan wages, but no longer living in Manhattan. Okay, that's great in the short term, but the firms are very, very number conscious. And now when you don't have the, we all need to be local in this office. So my talent pool is only within a, call it 30 mile radius for people that are willing to to drive or take the subway to this office. Now you've opened it up to the whole world. And so there's less competition and it does become less or there's less competition in that small space. But, you know, someone that's in Idaho or somewhere with a much lower cost of living, they're willing to take a gigantic pay cut because that works for them. And you exclude the annoying part in the beginning of setting up the taxes, which I'd imagine in, a, in an accounting firm is is less headache than it is for tech people being like, hey, paychecks, can you get this done? And it's it's a headache for us, neither here nor there. But you open up the talent pool and now all of a sudden, well, why would I pay Manhattan wages for all things equal? And we don't even get the part of, oh, every time he walks into a room, he just lights up and everybody is... Yeah better because of it. You can create that to an extent in Zoom. And I have seen it because we've done the everybody, we had everybody in the office and then everybody uh, remote. And I mean, we had migrated a bunch of our clients to remote before any of this happened. So, I mean, it was like, okay, we just migrate our company, boom, done, not, not a big deal. But then, you know, we're looking at the metrics and productivity and there's less of the sort of um so where I'm looking for like those intangibles because yeah. I mean it's it's over slack and I mean you you can create a culture but it is very different and maybe you know I mean we are only in year 3 now of like the the after covid started and you know we weren't allowed to go outside and I mean, we live in Florida, so I mean, like COVID only existed for like a month here, but <laughs> yeah, but, but I, I understand the rest of the world uh, still had it going on. And, and so creating that culture remotely, like it's, it's been something that 
you know, it's, it is, it works very well for certain people and not for others, Yes, but you know, that person that's willing to take a 75% pay cut and can throw out the same productivity and you don't even, you can't even justify anymore with intangibles. Well, now those Manhattan wages don't exist because you don't have to pay Manhattan wages in other places. Well, see, that's where the, that's where it should work. It's not how it's working. So what's happening is that New York firm or that LA firm or Atlanta firm, they need to hire people because they need bodies because they can't get people to do the work. So they're hiring somebody in, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, or a suburb or a city 100 miles away from Tulsa, Oklahoma that you never heard of. And they're paying them very high wages because they're selling their services that they're going to provide are going to provide that Atlanta-based firm's pricing and billing rates. So they're, they're paying those people. What's happening right now in this industry is, you know, people that are living in cities that they traditionally don't have the, the large commercial base to support, you know, higher wages. They're getting higher wages because they're getting into the remote workforce pool of these larger firms. They're going, look, we need the people. I don't care where you're living. It's going to be remote. Here's what we're going to pay you. And, I'm, and they leave. And these smaller firms and the communities they're in, which may not even be a small firm, they're the ones that are really getting tapped for talent now because they got to raise all their wages and sometimes their commercial base can't support that. The thing is, eventually, this whole thing's become national, global. You know, it's a, it's a national marketplace for most firms now. For most firms, it's more local to regional. But for firms of any size, $10, 20000000 million, it's become more of a national marketplace. So people across the, the country aren't really as big a factor. It's how you time together. Um, and again, this gets back to a lot of the succession problems going on in this industry because you don't have that leadership. Um, you know, it's, it's hard for people to manage in, in on top of it with what's happening right now. It's like firms are making more money than they ever made before. So it's kind of hard to say, you know, Andrew, maybe you should stop and reconsider how you're running your practice and redesign and look for three years ahead. When right now you got a fire hose knocking you over and going, well, I'm making a lot of money. I'll, maybe I'll just, Think about it later when it slows down. The problem is it just isn't slowing down. Yeah. Okay. Well, and also problem when it slows down, it's too late. Then, then you're like, you know what I should do? Go back in time when things were great and start laying the foundation yep. for these things. And I've experienced that firsthand of we went from 4 million in revenue down to 1 million. 1 million in three years time, four years time. And, you know, at those sort of bottom places, which happened to coincide with COVID. So getting PPP, idle, ERC, well, still waiting on ERC 18 months later, but, you know, under the assumption that someday, someday, uh, someday I've got that big check coming in the mail. The, you know, that helped at least support the turnaround that we've seen now in the last two, three years of building back up. But to your point of things were so good for so long that we couldn't see the someday we like what we're doing now. And it was a M&A model built on fire sales of companies that I would see run by these people, like my area, I just happened to be exact right place, right time. And my area in West Palm Beach, there were tons of companies starting up 
and making a ton of money up front and then just blowing everything and not running a good business. And so I saw the writing on the wall, these people wanting to to start these tech companies. And I was like, hey, you know, I'll be your friend. Like, this is what I would suggest you do. Da-da-da. No, Andrew, slow and steady doesn't win the race. I'm going to do this stupid thing that's going to make a lot of money real quick. And then everything burns to the ground. And I say, hey, like I can write you a check for that customer base. And that's that was how we had grown so much. But then people started realizing the only company that was successful was mine building it off everybody else failing. So they stopped wow. creating them, which stopped feeding our growth, we still had those existing customers that were still keeping us afloat and profitable. But when, you know, every year it's like the churn, it's just 60%, 60%, 60%. And now our churn's way, way better than it was. We're we're in like the 90-ish percent of retention year over year, which is absolutely incredible. But neither here nor there, even even if it was 90% year over year with no growth, it's still over time going to just cannibalize itself. And we didn't have anything in place for what the future held. Just so happened, you know, as the world works out, we were in these MA conversations and COVID hit and everything's valued like crap. I think the company's worth 10 times what we're getting offered, blah, 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 this and that. And then, you know, it caused me to reevaluate. We should be having these things in place. We should be having contracts in place. We should be having SOPs for everything we do. Just because everyone knows the job, okay. It's, yeah. You know, there's you a look, lot of factors, and it's really helped. A, a big area here. So, like, when you look at it, when when businesses are kind of rolling along, whether it's a CPA firm or any industry, it doesn't make a difference. You know, it's hard to look and go, how do I make the changes that need to be made for three to four years out? five years out. How do I invest in it now? How do I take the time to do it? And most people have a hard time doing it because like, well, why should I make a little less money to put an investment in place? And especially if I've got aging leadership. So if I've got aging leadership and they're going, hey, we, we're going to need you to take a, a, I'll use the word pay reduction. It may not be a pay reduction, but not make as much as you're going to make next year as you're projected because we need to take this money and invest it into here on something that's not going to pay off for five years after you've retired. I'm going to probably want to go, why would I do that? That's the right thing to do for the company. It's the right thing to do to, in theory, make my value more valuable when I do retire. But it's a hard decision to, to make less money to do that. The other part is the change component. So when you start making changes inside your company, right, if people are comfortable, a lot of people don't like change. They want to change into a new system, new process, because it's worked for them for a long time. So you're fighting a couple of battles on that. Plus, it's much different if you're losing money. If you're in a position where you need to make money because you're, you're losing money or you're compromised, that's a different conversation because now you know you need to make the change. You're forced to make change. Mm-hmm. So this is this is the more is the most interesting landscape I've ever seen. There seems to be no price ceiling in the CPA world. Firms that do let other clients go, the clients can't seem to find homes because no firm is. There's just not enough firms with enough labor right now to do all the work. So we've got, I think there's going to be businesses floating out there that do not have an accounting firm. And the ones that do find one are going to be paying a materially higher price than they were in the past. But at the end of the day, it's going to come down to these every firm, if they want to build the value of their enterprise to be able to sell it, whether they merge it up or sell it, or they do an internal succession, they got to be building the enterprise value. 
if they're not looking at their client base, they're not looking at their pricing, they're not looking at their bench, they're, they're going to be unfortunately surprised at the end of the day when the value of the firm's just not there or they're non-saleable. And I've had that non-saleable conversation with so many firms that make decent money, but there's nothing for somebody to want to buy. That's the you, issue. And so even though it's not the exact apples to apples, you've built yourself a job, you've still built a company that is very attractive to you. However... Yeah. These are these are circumstances that somebody else wouldn't want to just take on. And when you were talking about the investing in the future and it's not going to exactly pay off, and maybe this isn't a perfect analogy, but is it sort of like, as I'm just going through this now, selling a bunch of rental properties where it's like, okay, the tenants are out and now we do the home inspection. And it's like, well, you've got this problem, this problem, this problem. And it's like, well, why would I buy a new AC unit? This isn't going to be my problem as soon as it sells. And you know the counter is, this AC unit will cost you $7,000 out of your pocket up front, but in the sell price, it's going to be like a $20,000 hurdle to get over that they have to go through getting the new AC. So short term, it sounds dumb to put any money into something that's not going to be your problem, but long term, it's going to pay off better when it does come to your time to see the results. So, so do you see that in the M&A world or is that not exactly a good analogy? It, it, it's not a perfect analogy, but we do see that. So like, here's, here's the best way to sum that one up. Firms that are not investing in the technology, they become untouchable. Like in, in the CPA world specifically, if you got a firm that's still paper-based, our clients are just, no, thank you. Because that just tells you everything about the firm. It's kind of like if you hear a firm. So how we can price a firm so quickly most of the time is when we ask them that question about how many 1040s that they do. And if they tell us what that average 1040 rate is and they go, it's $400. You just tell me everything there is to know about how you price and run the entire firm. Okay. And, and no matter, unless it's an, unless it's an anomaly, you know, firms should be doing all of their 1040s at $1,000 plus. And we've got firms that do you know, four or 5,000. And the message on the four or 5,000 on 1040 is, I don't want you as a client unless you can afford a four or 5,000 dollar 1040. Okay. <laughs> That's a different market. But, you know, if you, if, if you, you, there's signs that firms send out about how they price, how they run their firm, how they do their culture, production hours are one of the big ones we see. Um, and we see a lot of firms with huge write-offs. How in this market you would write things off is beyond belief. Now, I understand if you have a training problem, you've got some realization problems because I put you in to do a tax return, Andrew, and you're not qualified to do a tax return. How dare I you? get that. Okay. I did the VITA program 15 years ago. I'll have you know. So in 2009, <laughs> I was qualified to do people in Wacomico County with less than 42,000 income. Well, there we go. Uh, you were nailing it back then. So if I put you in a complicated estate planning thing, my realization is probably going to suffer on that job. By the way, we don't do accounting or taxes here. There was more of an analogy. No, so, I, I got you. You know, kind of kind of to summarize some of those things, what's going on in this industry right now, a lot of turnover, a lot of questioning of values, like what should we be doing? What is the firm worth? Are we charging enough? If you want to write down the end of the day on this thing is, CPAs are often a little more um, conservative in their nature. 
selling isn't exactly what all of them do really well. So I don't want to deal with an objection from a client who goes, why did my fee go up by, you know, 40%? Probably because I've been under pricing forever, but, you know, let's start with that conclusion. But I don't want to answer that 40% fee increase, so I won't raise the fee 40%. What we are seeing across the board nationwide, firms are raising their fees, and the clients are going, well, what if the clients are going to leave? What's going to happen? You know, firms are like, we're going to be concerned. Very few clients leave. You take 500 clients, you raise the fees by 10%. I'm just making numbers up crew out there. So don't like look at that as an objective. If I raise it by 10%, you, you may lose a couple of clients, but at the end of the day, you're making a lot more money for a lot less work. And ideally, what a lot of these firms are doing now is trying to actually drive the fees up because Andrew, I want you to go away and you're not going away because I have a capacity problem. And though I've got more money from you, I still have that capacity problem. That's mm -hmm. the irony of this right now is they can't even get rid of clients by pricing them out high because they've got nowhere else to go. Also tells me that they've been underpricing for so long that they're now kicking themselves wondering why they didn't price more. But yeah, well, I mean, that was a that was a struggle for us a while ago. And it was a it was an internal and in everyone's headspace problem. And the way that I went about solving it. And I don't know if this was a good way or bad way or whatever it was, but since we have a remote team, people don't exactly like have conversations with each other all day, every day and see what everybody is doing all day, every day, because it's a remote workforce. So when I was training my new employees on the sales side, I was just training them to sell it way higher than the other people were because the other people said, oh, these people will never do that. Da, 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 da. And it was like, well, you're on the ground floor. You probably know better than I do, but I have a feeling that you're wrong, but I can't exactly prove it. So I teach them everything, apples to apples, all the exact same, except for I told them literally double what the other people said was our price ceiling. And I was just like, we've had this same price ceiling for eight years. I don't think that this is an actual ceiling. So I told the new people, double is the price that we usually charge, say with confidence, because that's you know how we do it. And you know, just, and and then they start getting deals, and they're crushing the old people in sales. And it was like you said, it, it was an internal. We we had this fear that we're going to drive away yeah. people, and now the ones that basically won't leave like we had talked about we've got that that 80 20 we we trimmed the client garden last year was the first time we we didn't do an 80 20 we did an 80 20 of the 80 20 so we did a 96 4 so at, we we had a thousand clients at that time and we cut 40 of them and it, it's okay because we were able to take on so many more yeah, than those 40 capacity. without having to yeah yes like at for up front it was like we just lost 40 clients air quote lost but we also have a growth strategy that's very repeatable and it's it's really cool to be a part of now because we didn't used to have that um and and it's like we should have done this years ago and now we're, we're at a new year and it's like time to trim the client guarding. And it's like, oh, but this is, this feels wrong. I don't want to be doing so, this. What if I lose this, money? It's like, you're so profitable right now doing this same thing over and over. Stop. We started doing this thing called a market value accelerator because what we're seeing in the M&A sector, when we see the financials come over, it's interesting. So we look at the numbers inside a firm as if we're going to be selling it, whether I'm selling it or not. 
we get all our production data, we get the client base, we get all our financials, and we look at it with a whole different set of eyes. And one of the things we've been doing recently is pulling down all the client data that they provide, dumping it into a cluster map. And then they see, okay, here's your concentration of clients that are either low revenue, low profitability, and here's your ones that may be more in the upper right-hand quartile, which are high revenue, high profitability. And then when you look at the map, and you see all the clients just clustered in one spot. And often it's normally not a good spot. That's eye-opening because now they're like, okay, this is what's crushing us. This is what's forcing people to leave. This is why we're, you know, we're working long hours. This is why we're killing ourselves. Why aren't we up more in the upper right-hand quadrant where they're more profitable? What are we doing to get those clients? And often what happens is the firm starts back and go, we're not doing anything to get those clients, which is our problem. We're spending all of our time on the energy on these clients that we're either breaking even on in some cases. <laughs> um, yeah. We've seen clients losing money on clients. And we're like, well, you're spending $200,000 worth of your labor time on a client that you're <laughs> literally losing money on. Why would you do this? Because it's because they look at it as, well, it's 200000 in revenue. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Bob, you're, you're hitting on so, <laughs> so, so good because I, I tell this a lot and I I mean, whether or not he follows me anymore, he moved. But my old next door neighbor was our biggest client and the worst client, like the the absolute just nightmare scenario. We when we went through the exercise of which clients are we going to politely let go of, and we we sort of had a mathematical equation, right? Of how many tickets you put in per year, how many employees you have how much your revenue is, and had a formula basically of this is about what your profit is. We had a lot of different merchants in different spots. So it, was, it wasn't it was as easy that we have now where I click a button in QuickBooks and I can tell you with in a pretty good amount of certainty exactly what your profitability is. Neither here nor there. So I run the numbers and it's like top line, he's definitely our biggest client. And bottom line, he is killing us. this is such yeah. a negative it's a terrible negative and it's then a hard realization when you yeah look so at it. so then i charged him i still gave him a deal for what he was doing but i tripled his price and he's like he's like how dare you do that to me like we're neighbors and i was like honestly i should charge you more than what this triple number is i just can't do that one with a straight face and you know didn't didn't work out and you know what, Bob? We're still profitable. We're actually more profitable yeah. since they left. And, and it's like, of course, of course we are, because that's how math works. And for people that are very analytical, it should be easy, but we get the emotions tied the emotional in. Emotional part's a killer. Yeah. We have, we have this thing called e, the E3 factor, okay? It's, it's economics. Okay, that's one of them that could come into play. Ego. So you can kind of see if there's an ego issue that may, and the, the last one's the emotions. So you can mute the economics pretty quickly. You can go yes or no, this doesn't make any sense, or I can see opportunity or holes, whatever. The ego, normally that becomes kind of transparent at some point, but the emotional component, that could go right down to the wire, like signing that letter of intent. And you're like, I can't do it because of this, even though everything else makes sense. I can't control it. So the hard part is getting in front of the emotional part first. If you can figure that part out, because then you can at least go, okay, should I pursue this even further or should I change path? Because economics and ego are pretty easy. It's that third factor. And we, it took us a long time to learn that. Um, and many lost deals 
<laughs> okay. And many deals that went way down the path or opportunities of clients are way down the path. Like, look, you're approaching it all wrong because we missed the emotional component of it. So we're pretty good about getting up in front of that right now because you still can't hundred percent predict it, but you can flush that out if you start looking at it with that set of eyes. Yeah. When, transaction. when we were on the selling side of the table, and this was the realization that I had to come to. We didn't do the exercise that you had just uh, mentioned, but, and I mean, whether or not, obviously, you know, your industry and how it works way better than I do from just being hopefully a, a piece in it. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, the guy that's had a handful of these that like sort of been there, like, you know, the guy yeah. that's gone to like 10 baseball games in his life, like listen to, listen to him, uh, major league coach. Um, so when, when I sat down and, and I had just looked at what do I want to be doing? Like when, if the company is no longer here, what does that free me up to be able to do now was sort of what I was looking at. And it was like, what are the things you love doing? It's like creating workflows for the company and finding ways to optimize profitability and working with my team and building up others. And it's like, well, and I like golf too. Um, and, and so I can do a lot more golf and none of anything else that I am really like interested in doing. And then it was like, you know, this wasn't the right move for me. And once I came to that realization, then just, you know, said to the broker, like, apologize. Like, I know we've gone down this path and deal died like you had. Yeah, like you had mentioned, and and I want to be conscious of your time, Bob. We've hit on so many great topics today, and and I feel like I could just go on more and more and more down the rabbit hole. We could do another session. We could talk about pricing. We could talk about whatever you want. By the way, your point about how you apologize to the broker that was representing you, we like it when we see somebody that's tried it a couple of times and it's failed because often when they go down the first time down the road where they're like, okay, I think this firm's worth, you know, so much money. And if somebody doesn't actually tell them up front that their their mindset's wrong, you down you go down this path. If you've been down it a couple of times, you're like, okay, I now have a more realistic expectation of what my value is, what the process is. So we like it when we talk to somebody who's been down the path a few times. That there's more of a sense of reality. There's a grounding in place. Um, and then we have clients conversely who've never done this, and 100% rely on what we tell them to do. And, you know, the goal of any transaction, actually anything, a new customer, customer experience, how do you create a fair transaction? That is really what it comes down to, fair for both parties. Nobody should be winning. Both parties should be the winners on the deal. It shouldn't be one or the other. And that's how we approach most of these. And there's always a little give and take because some people want certain things that may, may be personal to them, um, which, you know, you have to look and accommodate. Can you can you do that? Here's a long and short like whole thing. Your company, Andrew, is worth what I'm willing to pay for it and what you're willing to sell it for. <laughs> okay. Yes. If we can't it, get that close, then then no matter how good or how much I need this or how much, it won't make a difference. And if if you start negotiating too much, then what happens is somebody's going to be disappointed at the end of the day if somebody starts to give up just too much. Um and that's that's it. That's that's the that's the whole trick to most of this family. And then I'm going through this with selling houses. Like everything that you're saying is just like, you know, I had one. Not 
I'm, I'm not going to get into this giant resentment, but had tenants that destroyed the house and it, you know, Zillow says it's worth like twice what we're getting offered after they destroyed it. So yeah, what someone else is willing to pay versus what I'm willing to sell it for. And yeah, and that's, 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 and that's the world of sales. Yeah. <laughs> Whether it's an M&A deal or I'm buying a, a, a dinner at a restaurant, <laughs> you, know, you, you go through the menu with different prices. You're like, here's eh, where I'm kind of at for that. <laughs> um, that's it. Not much that's, more to it. And their emotions point. kick into that too. Why do you think somebody buys the most expensive bottle of wine in a restaurant? Because they're in a, they're in a great mood or, or they're, they're something's happening and they're like, oh, okay, I'll get this really expensive bottle of wine. And other days you'll go in and go, I really don't even want wine with the meal. I just want to eat something. Cause I, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> so the, con- anyway. the context of what, of what the situation is does play a big role. And, you know, I would imagine that if someone's starving for growth and I'm still going to be conscious of your time. So I'll just speculate someone that's like, I have to, I have to grow. I have to grow. I have to grow. Here's an offer. That's maybe not exactly what I want, but like, I just got to take it because it's going to put out some of these uh, fires short term. And it's maybe not the best thing or flip side, probably more often on the flip side of, I need to sell, I need to sell, I need to sell. And the offers that I'm getting are not what I want to accept, but I've they come to the realization to that, that that's... They waited too long. Yeah. Yeah. So, so thinkvisionary.com, advisoryofficer.com. Bob, where else can people find you? Jeez, um, we're all over the place. If you Google us, we're, you'll, we'll pop. We're in BDO's Alliance. We work with RSM's Alliance, CPA America, AGN, DFK, BR. I mean, there's just so many groups we work with. Uh, 800-995-9186 and we're your home. Somebody here will take care of the calls. It's not where there's 10 of us here. So it's not like you're calling a, I feel like I should do that number three times, like an infomercial 800-995. You know, that's, that's how things, how things stick. It seems so crazy. There, there's like a, a personal injury attorney and they saw his commercial once. And, and I still remember they're like, 1-800-CALL-LEE, 1-800-CALL-LEE, 1-800. And that was the whole commercial. And it's like, I saw it once and I still remember it like six years later. I yeah. probably wouldn't call him, but if, there, if you're a smaller firm, we can help you talk through things as well. If you're a larger firm, we've got some pretty unique strategies in place. We we have a lot of clients in that 10 to $100 million plus space. And we have many clients who have other needs that are a million, two million, three, five million. It's a big world out there. And we're pretty non-sales oriented. We we don't push. You can't push this stuff. It just yeah. Well, that way. I I took in a lot. Hopefully, the listeners did as well. Bob, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate your time, and it was great uh, talking with you and learning so much about these things. Hey, good luck selling those houses in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Tech Talk for Accountants show. I hope you enjoyed today's guest. And remember, you can go to techforaccountants.net slash podcast to book a complimentary IT audit conducted by a technician certified by the AICPA in cybersecurity. Again, that's tech, the number four, accountants.net slash podcast.